Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, guys. This memoir has adult content. FYI. That's true. It's very good. Did you know it was very good? It's real good. Are you proud of oh, yourself? Oh, me. You're talking yeah, to me. No, you. It's a really good memoir. I was reading it and, and texting different friends and be like, you have to read this. And some of them were Aww. like, why are you being so intense right now? But being it's, intense It's beautiful. Good. Thank you so much, Sarah. Of um, thank you so much to Skylight. Thank you. That was a good intro. I think you set up the book well enough. Yeah. Mother leaving, <laughs> mother leaving for all. Um, I'm just going to start off and read uh, around a couple of passages from Mother Winter. I won't be too long-winded because I'm dying to talk to Sarah. <laughs> and if I'm taking notes, it's because I've thought of something that I want to ask It's you because about. you're auditing me and you're Scientologist. Yeah, I am. That's great, why great. we're all That's here tonight. That's why I'm here in LA for your Scientology <laughs> it's vibes. Very okay, fantastic. All right, here's Mother Winter. There was no Christmas in the Soviet Union, officially. But we did get a holiday tree, religiously. We opened our presents on New Year's Day. Like most Russians, we had a plastic figurine of Dyat Maros, Old Man Frost, and his daughter Snigurichka, the snow maiden, under our tree. A whole nation never wondering why this cold man was all alone with this young girl whose job was to assist him in delivering the gift of winter. We all displayed a frozen child whose mother was all but out of the picture as our holiday centerpiece. Conspiring in the myth that she's magically capable, diligent, selfless, and not lonely or creeped out by the old man. That she's unmarred by seasons of obedience. That she likes to work for the man. I do not recall a single New Year's Day when I woke up and you were there to open presents with me. It's my mom. I would go to bed, staring up at the red star on the tree illuminating the yellow duck curtains in my dad's study, which doubled as my room in the beginning years, and think about the jolly old man's wife, whose figurine didn't exist, but her face floated around the room like I had been inhaling an aesthetic gas nevertheless. Swedish doctors have come up with a proper name for this withdrawn state. Up and given syndrome. <laughs> Resignation syndrome. Refugee children with recent temporary asylum in Sweden, when told that they would not receive permanent residence, became catatonic and limply accepted feeding tubes from doctors who deemed them diapostica, the apathetic. It was recorded that a typical refugee child in their care lies completely still on the examination table and shows no reaction to caregiving. The doctor lifted Georgie's wrists a few inches above his forehead and then dropped them. They fall down on his face, she wrote. The observation notes on resignation syndrome in 2017 sound like hallucinations of motherlessness in 1987. The patients have no underlying physical or neurologic disease, but they seem to have lost the will to live. I think it is a form of protection, this coma they're in. They're like Snow White. They just fall away from the world. Mothering is dictated by proximity, followed by a psychic absorption of the love object, so the closeness could be carried on anywhere regardless of distance. The inversion of this can never hold. 
Mothers who come back after loving from afar for any serious length of time will be gravely punished as they troll after their grown children with a warm scarf during winter or a bowl of porridge in the haste of the morning. I still would like to try having her beg me to wipe my nose. I want those first rites of refusal. Refrigerator mothers were once held responsible for causing mental illness in their offspring. That's a good one. Their inadequate displays of affection disturbed the child into a disorganized and frenzied state. The fathers probably read this hypothesis in the newspaper they never looked up from long enough to notice their wives were legally drugged and stripped of purpose beyond enthusiastically cooing. Open white, darling, that a girl. In the five years I came home from boarding school with a series of ailments, your ex-husband tried to be my sick nurse, to wean his inconsolable girl from needing a mother whose stilts he could no longer hack at to bring her back down to our level. After the mobile clinic doctor would leave, shaking his head because I was too thin and my fever too high, dad taught me to put a towel over my head and breathe in the steam from boiled potatoes to clear the sinuses to grind up mustard seeds and tape the paste to the back of my neck when swollen lift nodes would not drain, to sip hot milk with a dollop of butter and a spoonful of honey, to rub vodka on a wheezing chest, to stuff garlic into wool socks to draw out impurities, to tightly wrap up in a camel hair blanket to shiver and sweat through the night. He swabbed little glass jars with alcohol and lit them on fire, blowing them out and sticking the rims onto my back to make rows that left brown marks in a turtle shell pattern. I must have had delirium tremens by proxy, the way a partner might feel sympathy pains during labor. Somatization implies that our cells, our antigens and pathogens, are ruled and activated by the anxieties of the mind. But I had no body without you. The things that touched, the cups creating suction, the shots in my flat behind, blooming with indigo rosebuds of scar tissue, all passed through me like a lost and found bin at the bus depot. Nothing was mine to be absorbed because I wasn't absorbed by you or you by me. I could buy the ticket, take the ride, but never arrive at my body clean and fed. Not until I cleaned and fed children of my own. If your mother won't stand behind you brushing your hair saying, look how beautiful you are, I'm so proud of you, don't listen to a word those other miserable lost souls say. I know who you are. You're my strong, my brave, my lovely little girl. You're nobody's punching bag. God don't make no junk and you're my jewel <laughs> of a prize and I waited for all my life and you get to choose whatever you feel like wearing no matter the price. There's so many versions of this motherly love mantra that I had told myself in the mirror as a small child, braiding my hair every morning. I'd wake up extra early, determined to French braid my dirty and unbrushed locks, black, crunchy, and greasy, into something that I could rescue while hiding the fact that I had no one to get me ready for school, no one to make me take a bath on Sunday nights. As a girl, being unkempt and smelly as I was in my neglected state was a sin that boys got away with all the time. I braided my hair to protect my family and the dignity I believed was my duty to preserve until my arms fell asleep, until I made myself late for school. I wouldn't dare wake up my dad and any overnight guests he may have had over. So I looked through their coats for money I needed to get to school. If I couldn't find enough, I would panhandle. My strategy was to stand by the change machines at the subway turnstile and cry. Eventually, someone would notice a little girl in a school uniform weeping alone and came over to ask me what had happened to upset me. I would say that the machine ate my money and I'm desperately late for class. 
Most of the time, I would get more than my fare. Rush hour uh, down the subway escalator is like an avalanche, a controlled explosion on the slopes. A tiny kid with a violin case, a backpack full of finished homework, and a sack of clean laundry she has scrubbed and dried on the line for the week ahead could get swallowed up. At times, all I could see were people's belts and crotches, behinds and hips, squishing me until the opening above almost closed up, until I couldn't breathe and yell out for help, help down there beneath being seen. I ran away from boarding school and walked around looking for my mother instead of attending violin lessons. I skipped lessons regularly and lied about it to my father, who was jittery with shame after my recitals, signaling a future beating would take place behind closed doors with a smack upside the head. The unspoken rule was that if I didn't use them to listen and play the notes, my ears were to be boxed. Most of the time, I said goodbye to my boarding school teachers, waving my sheet music and violin case at them, and walked around Pushkin, kicking icicles out of drain pipes, or watching people shop for dinner at the bazaar. I was going to trap her into taking care of me, as though she had needed a reminder, as though she were simply having a bad day year after year and had forgotten to move her hands from her closed eyes. I must have thought she would cry out with relief and tell me how exhausted she was from running around trying to get me back, how smart I was to read her mind and come back to her at once. What sore eyes you have, mother dear. Some freezing day in second grade, I got off at the subway stop like a dog going on instinct. I walked over to her building complex and stood in the courtyard, shouting up at the great concrete facades. I tried to search out her windows, but they were all the same. The dark squares looked like gaping mouths screaming back at me. I want you to stand out in the cold and pine for my windows to open, mother. Whenever men sing love songs to women on the radio, I don't think they're for me. I picture myself as the guy, and I'm speaking directly to my mother. If the lyrics seem sexual, I bypass those words by humming and concentrate on the need, the want, the chase, the absence, the raw and base desire to be one with another. This has nothing to do with making love. It's about symbiosis. Before loneliness will break my heart, send me a postcard, darling. How can I make you understand I want to be your woman? Sappho was a liar player, a singer, an accomplished musician who summoned to serenade, was summoned to serenade important weddings and grand parties. She ran a boarding school for girls and threw elaborate graduation parties to see them off in their new journeys as artists, philosophers, and musicians. She sang freely about women and love because in her time, platonic relationships were celebrated as much as sexual bonds. Your basic hot rock star. <laughs> Out of sheer necessity, being called a slut by girls who didn't realize we were provoked into a dogfight, beds placed, nothing to be gained, I would evoke my own rock stars. Women had already lost watching the Rolling Stones instead of being them. Who would sing about women like my mom? Why aren't there like 5,000 songs about heartbreak over your drunk mother instead of dumb boys and breakups? What if that's the real reason your heart hurts? How come there aren't more songs about losing your girlhood to a nasty troll? Or more sad songs about losing your best friend for the first, second, third time to pack up piranhas who play guitar, tell you to take it easy, and never call you back? Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Sophia. First of all, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad all of you are here. So a uh, show of hands, I'm not going to call on anybody. How many of you have gotten a peek at the book, whether you've read it or read an excerpt? How many of you are very interested in purchasing it at a local <laughs> independent bookseller? <laughs> Such as this one. Such as this one. <laughs> 
and getting it autographed by an author such as this one. Okay, that's that's very, very good. Um, and thank you all for coming out for a book event at an independent establishment in a city where there's lots of things to do. This is very meaningful. And also there's a tree in the middle, which is cool. So beautiful. <laughs> I know, I love it here so much. I'm a member anyway. Um, so, Sophia, who comes up to you and says, or writes to you, like, what is, is there a, is there a demographic? <laughs> uh, what kind this of people? Already I know it's already amazing. I don't even know what's going on. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Who comes up to you and says, this book is for me. I, I relate so much to this. You wrote my book. I, or who wants to get really emotional and hug you and maybe you feel weird about that. But like, who, who, who does it really hit? Who have you noticed? Is it all young women? Is it all young women um, from immigrant families? Like who, who is it? Who reaches out to you? Mr. Rogers <laughs> from the grave. No, um, um, yeah, I've gotten some really sweet correspondence from uh, women who are immigrants, you know, especially if they're from Soviet Russia or if they're from Azerbaijan, where my um, half of my family is from. Um, and then, yeah, like lots of women who say, like, I have an unexplainable loss, like, or... Um, my friend Chelsea Beaker just wrote a really incredible piece for Electric Lit about uh, her own mother abandoning her when she was nine. And I guess what she was talking about in it is that there's so many different types of losses and we sort of like all live in our own cauldron of loss until we find somebody else who's in that similar cauldron. So you can lose a husband and you just have to like walk around and be like, oh, you're just eating spaghetti. That's cool. I lost my husband. But there's something about being abandoned by a parent that's possibly still alive rather than having somebody die that's very unique because there isn't really a thing to mourn. And so people who don't know sort of like people who have like the tomb of the unknown soldier to deal with kind of phenomenon are the people who reach out the most and who are the most touched and I mean I'll take all the hugs. It, it sort of seems in reading it it reminded me of some narratives by uh, adults who have uh, kidnapped children missing or lost children oh, okay. in a sense who don't they don't have confirmation at the time of writing anyway when I've read certain narratives that the child is dead and mm -hmm. so there's always that hope that they're out there and that things have changed and that they're different, especially if they've got a teen who's in the throes of addiction who's run away. Mm -hmm. And I feel, even though it's writing about a mother and, and reading your book, that's part of it, right? That's, it's it's this, this mystery of, well, is she out there? And is she thinking about me? And what's happening? And will this person come to me? And how will this happen? Um, I am... I was really impressed in, in reading this book, which you should purchase for a reasonable price here, um, because you, you do something very difficult, which is you write about some people who uh, are living and who are in your life still, or who you know, and you, you don't seem to pull punches. Like, I wrote a memoir about mental illness. I cannot wait to buy it today. <laughs> oh, oh, excellent. It may or may not be here. But... Um, I pulled a lot of punches. Like I, I portrayed my mother as a, you know, a hero. I don't talk about what it was like to be raised by a, a parent with untreated mental illness. Uh -huh. I, I don't talk about the reality of what it was like to be raised by uh, my father. You, you, it seems you do. And yeah. in in so doing, um, did you have fear as you were writing this? Yeah. About reactions. Um. A good question and I feel like I, because it's a question I obviously get a lot right so it's like I have so many different answers I first have an answer that's like 
do we ask men that question? Mm-hmm. You know, like, do we ask men, do we tell men that they're brave when they tell stories, right? Um, and, like, what are our expectations for, like, feminine texts? Uh, and the answer is, yeah, like, we we have a sexist scrim in front of us where we sensationalize women's stories and we have, like, a different kind of news cycle or a different way of metabolizing and digesting them. Like, if a woman has a, an eating disorder, like, that she's labeled as that, like, forever. Like, it doesn't, she can't, she's always, like, under it or through it or whatever. That's but her brand. That's her brand. <laughs> forever. Yeah, forever. And so, like, it, for, what, for whatever reason, like, our stitches are ourselves rather than our bodies ourselves um, as though women are the only people who are like experts at being broken or something so that's one thing but in terms of actually writing the book as I've said numerous times I had no intentions of writing it as memoir I don't care about lanes or genres and sections I completely respect that stores have to have those things I completely respect their marketing teams and that there is a, you know a capitalist cog to sort of feed but it just has never interested me and I never approached it that way and I think being like like kind of naive like Craig and I went to go see like that liars art show um at, at LACMA and I was just like yeah I mean like maybe if you get placed in the other bin that's best and so I just always came from the other bin I never came from the place of belonging like I came from a place of exile so I never had anybody to really like impress or think about I didn't know anything about genre like it just didn't even occur to me I just read everything as like either literature or like historical fact Mm. um and so that helped me not be afraid and then the other piece is the uh, they held back the things that I have to be afraid of from me after they convinced me to sell it as memoir even though I wanted to sell it as a novel or a prose poem whatever um and then once they convinced me to sell it as memoir because that's what sells they waited until I submitted my book Hi, babies. Um, I love your sunglasses indoors. Um, after that's a that's that's not the book your mom wants you to get. <laughs> oh, cool! Oh, I love it. I don't care. I have two children. Whatever. Um, but I guess they held off, and maybe that was strategic. I have no idea, but that when I was um, losing bowel control, I think, and, and, and not in a real, you know, in my mind, was when they were like, oh, you have like four passes with lawyers. I was like, yeah. oh, cool, thanks for telling me about this. Like, that's something I missed out on. And maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but I'm never, ever, not because I want to further getaways memoir, but I just don't really think that I'm going to allow unless there's a special circumstance for anybody to convince me to write something called memoir and lawyer check me ever again. And in terms of my father, that's like another thing that I, I mean, I'd lived through so much with him already. What's more, what's mm-hmm. this, you know, like <laughs> yeah. we, we've, we've Courtney loved it through this. <laughs> I'm good. We're good. He'll live through this. And, and I did actually protect him a lot. Like, I feel like I created an, a nuanced character. And when we talked about this, I explained this to him and he sees it as like, it's, these are, this is, he believes that like an 11 year old girl wrote a novel, you know, it's like, these are the ramblings of a child who wrote fiction. That's how he feels about it. And I agree with him. Yeah, and I think that's great. My, I have a secondary dad, gains. I have a dad who always said, "You can write about anything we did or said as long as it's true." And a mother who's like, "Don't put pictures of me on social media." So it's a very interesting sort of dichotomy. But they're not here right now. Um, do you find that people? 
have projected, because in the process of writing memoir, right, you're, um, and I know that you didn't want it to be a memoir, but it's labeled a memoir, right? Yeah, so people yeah. are going to pick this up and they look at it and they, this is their, if they are strangers to you, this is their only, unless they've read your extensive other work or looked at your art, like this is their only understanding of you. You become, yeah. and uh, you become this, right, to them. Yeah. This reality becomes... Do you f have you found that reviewers or that um, readers have projected a lot of their own stuff onto what they read? You mean misogyny? Maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> have I gotten? Has there been some misogyny projected my way? Yes, that has happened. I mean, I really thought that there would be a lot more discussion about like language or like craft or like those types of choices. I understand that we have like a lot of narrative hunger and I'm with that. Like I, human beings need narrative to organize themselves out of the schizophrenia of our day-to-day -day existence. I get that, but that's, I, again, one more place I came at it very naively where I was like, oh, we're going to have so many discussions about sentences and why this thing follows that thing or like arrangements. Like I thought it would, you know, we would talk about it like the way we talk about music arrangements mm -hmm. and not say like, well, I just wonder if Stravinsky's mom like really like screwed him up that one time. You know, like I don't, I just, I really felt... Um, hopeful that that would happen and it's happened here and there and that's great but when it doesn't happen I have to say just when when you ask somebody a question you know you're asking somebody a question not because you're sometimes curious to know about them you're curious to know something about you being reflected off of mm -hmm. them I'll leave it at that. That's a really, really great way of saying it. It, it becomes, I think because we live in perhaps a world of social media where we're very used to looking at these tiny snapshots of other people's lives and judging them and then judging ourselves against that. Yeah, narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Then that, but I think that, that and I think that comes, people bring that to memoir as well. Too like reading yours and, and, and going like oh it, rather than being taken away necessarily by the language and by the story and just being in that sometimes it's like I don't know um, uh, I, I've seen in, in looking I like reading reviews of memoirs and I like reading interviews with memoirs because I just think they're really interesting mm -hmm. and I like seeing the weird questions is, is what are the questions you've gotten the most so far mm -hmm. from people like what comes up the most is it, how are you doing? Are you okay? Like, is it that? Does that come up? I think people know that I'm just don't care about okay or not okay. Like, that's mm. not even a thing, maybe. Um, the questions you get the most are like, what does your dad think about this thing? <laughs> and that is bizarre because I do not have an answer. I have not asked him. I mean, I'm going to see him in a little bit. And, like, my boyfriend and I are going out there. And I'm going to do some readings with Eileen Miles and... Um, Melissa Fibos, and it's going to be really great. And my dad is already planning to take everybody out for for Russian dinner. That's and, awesome. You know, he bought <laughs> copies for everybody in the family, and we are not. It's not. That's not a thing. I don't know. I honestly have no idea if my father has finally gotten me after forty years, and is just like, this is her artwork. That's her business. I'm not here to like examine her. Like, look at the horse's teeth. Like, it's not a thing. I have no idea. I'm, I'm actually, like, I'm avoiding even really thinking about it. But, yeah, I think every single thing has been, like, okay, I guess I guess this is, this is very valid and important. People want to know what is it like 
in the Me Too era to out somebody and go on tour and live through that. And people think like I'm going around like outing my dad. Like mm-hmm. it's not what's happening at all whatsoever. Like I'm not roasting my dad. Like my my father, whatever mistakes he's made, they're portrayed in this nuanced way. And I, I want you to be under my fictive spell. Like I want you to sort of just like see him as this complex character, as this man who is like systemically punished for being Jewish, for being brown, for migrating from Azerbaijan to come to a place very, very young and meet like a, a beautiful, enchanting, alcoholic white woman whom he has a child with like 10 seconds after he weds her and doesn't know what to do. That is a lot more interesting than what my dad thinks about me at all. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of compassion I found in reading this. I, I found that it, it felt like kind of dreamy flashes at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved that you played with time and that it, the the prose, it's weird. The prose, not not the book isn't weird. I'm saying my reaction is weird. weird. So I was thinking um, it's at once spare and really dense. Like I think you're doing so much with so few words sometimes. And it, I was trying to explain it to someone and I was saying sometimes it felt like I was reading song lyrics. It was just so lovely oh, and Sarah. really beautiful. And then uh, sometimes you pause at the end of this beautiful passage and go, wow, that passage told a, a story of, of, of violation or of trauma or of pain, but I was really captivated by the language. And um, I think I think that a lot of your influences are very clear because you, you call them out, you shout them out in terms of like looking for, for mothers in, in other figures. Um, d- how much has poetry been a part of your reading life since you were young? Yeah, that is a really good question. So because um, in the Soviet upbringing, the Soviet tradition, I mean like having to memorize poetry and having to, I say in the book, like it's sort of like poetry, country, family, like that's just how it goes. Um, and so it did, it's not just like it influenced me, it's one of those things where when you come to a country, when your hormones are changing and you are consumed with the loss of a of already lost parent and you are becoming a teenager and you're learning Hebrew and English at the same time as a bunch of mean pimply girls are calling you names, all of the poetry you recited in your life absolutely means nothing. Like, what was I supposed to do? Like, recite Mayukovsky to a bunch of girls who were like, ew, you use Mario Brothers shampoo? You're poor. <laughs> like, I mean, all of my life, everything I've lived, everything I've revered became completely useless to me overnight. And so the reason there's so much white space is like they're white sheets because my country is dead. And 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 I wanted to also talk about how in the 90s I came here, like I, we arrived right as, I mean, I think like 1995, the most um, folks died of AIDS out of any year. And, and we just don't really think or talk about it. But I remember being in junior high school and in high school, and it's just like this idea of, of you know, the AIDS quilt and like the white sheets. And for whatever reason, because I didn't know how to name it, and maybe that's another way of thinking about poetry, I would like watch these things on TV. And for some reason, I'd be consumed by the AIDS crisis. And I was like very obsessed with queer culture and like going to the limelight and, you know, partying with my fair and stuff so like I was really interested in how people were handling loss that way because I didn't have any words for my loss and my loss was so very specific it was almost 
inaccessible, right? And the loss of my country was was so public. It was like this public shaming, like finally the Soviet Union is gone, like Drago is down, you know, Rocky <laughs> got him. And so there was just so much shame around that that I couldn't even think about that. Like I had to dissociate myself from being Soviet. I had to dissociate myself from being motherless. I pretended that my stepmother was really my mother. Like I just lived in this pretend world where I was as American as it gets. And so I fixated on the white sheets of all these beautiful gay men dying and that beautiful gay culture dying. Um, and that kind of like became like my new poetry. Like I became very interested in America and like American poetry and sold myself out just to survive. There was, um, uh, I was reading, I was reading an interview that you did. I don't remember if it was with The Stranger or The Rumpus, but you were saying, or you were quoted in it as saying something to the extent of, like, you understand uh, this, you were not at all saying dissent is a bad idea. Obviously, you were someone who enjoys disrupting, which is a very overused Go word. Go home, watch your TV, don't come out. <laughs> you were, I think you were saying, um, but there is a lot of joy for you and and gratitude in being an American. Like you said something to the extent of, I can't shit on America too much or something like that. I forget what it was. I'm screwing it up. No, yeah. But, but it must be interesting to be somebody who's um, come up in the way that you have and who's participated in these um, kind of, who's obviously very politically aware and has been very engaged with feminism and to also have, it seems, a lot of love for your second country. For yeah. Yeah, I am... So American, it's it's like beyond, and and not I'm like not like nationalistic. I'm I think America is ripe for democratic socialism. Obviously, like any normal person would think, and um, I think whatever Gorbachev was doing could you know could work very well here today in America. That would be great if we had all the stuff: socialized medicine, boring, 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 whatever. Um, but I am an American because. In order to survive, you have to sublimate and you have to do better than just be very serious. And this is a country where women are hilarious. Like, you're a comedian. <laughs> and that helped me along. Like, I'm sorry, but there is no other place in the world where married with children exists. <laughs> Kelly Bundy was my hero. And I got the joke. And I was, I was like, meta. It's like, I'm her. And I'm laughing at myself. And she's laughing at me. And everybody's laughing at her. But they don't know. It was like a thing. And there's no other place in the world where that exists, where you have that out, where you have that throughway, and this is the country where that happened, and no, I cannot crap on that country, I'm not going to leave that country, I crawled to get here, and so I'm actually going to like stay here and support the better parts of the country, rather than say that this is like, boohoo, I mean, have you lived somewhere else? I mean, I'm sure it's beautiful and amazing, and good for them in Europe, but they are so not funny. <laughs> I was deeply influenced by Katie Seagal as Peg Bundy's fashion, like whoever was doing the wardrobe. There was Hello! A, I know. I, what, like, I wish these were leopard print and this had a deep V and a push-up bra. Yes. It was like so yes. magnificent. Yes. When did you, was there a point in your life when you became aware that you wanted to write? as opposed to telling stories in a different way. Like what the written word, was there a point you remember as a kid, not just enjoying reading books, but thinking I want to be an author, an authoress, a lady author, <laughs> a woman authoress. But yeah, is there a point where you just thought, I'm gonna write a book one day, damn it. 
Yeah, I think I thought that when I was like five. I was like, <laughs> all these books, like this is these are my parents. No, I, when I started high school, I would hide in the library instead of going to lunch. Like for the first two years of high school, I just hid in the library and... And then I would go to Strand and flip through magazines I didn't understand. Like, I would just, like, look at the Paris Review, and I was like, this looks fancy, and people are talking about fancy things. And I was like, I just want to be with these people. Um, and then just, like, little tiny things that were amazing happened. Like, the Riot Girl movement happened, and I had girls give me zines. And they said, like, you don't have to wait for this fancy magazine. Um, you can make one. Do you have a stapler? <laughs> do you have glue? Yeah, you can and do we it. would put glue <laughs> on the um, the stamps so that when you got your zine in the mail, you lick the glue off and reuse the stamp because when they stamped <laughs> it, you can. Re- so we would just pass those. That's a maybe. People could still do that. Reuse the stamp over and over. Did you read Sassy Magazine? Um. Yeah, that was my Bible. I loved it so yes, much. Yes, I sat there in the library and I would read. I mean, I would read anything. Yes. I was very estrogen saturated, but that was like the one thing that was like, yes, you could be a pop culture and like be into not mainstream things. Yeah, it was great. When you were, you read a a bit where you were talking about um, what it's like to grow up or you were writing about the idea, that image of a, a mother behind a daughter reassuring her, brushing her hair and telling her she's beautiful or some version of that, comforting, you are my own. Like you were just reading it now. And I wanted to ask about how how you approached the idea, that idea about beauty in writing this book. Because so often beauty, how women present themselves, how they perform gender and femininity, right, is, is this sacred almost thing that's handed down from mother to daughter. Yeah. Supposedly. I mean, my mom didn't know how to do makeup or or how to do hair, so I I would like look it up in books and how to do it, which is fine. She had other priorities. That's fine. But how did did that inform, thinking about beauty and presentation, how did that inform when you were writing this book? Like what, what you brought to the page? Yeah, that's a really good question because I didn't, I didn't have, yeah, my mother to to like groom me that way or instill that in me. And my stepmother was like so hyper feminine in this way that I think is fantastic. Like she was a drag queen in a way. <laughs> and so I thought that was fantastic. And I, and, and I, I revere that kind of hyper femininity, but I just don't, I just don't go there. I don't know why that's never been like a thing for me. Maybe it's something that's, I, I don't, it's, it's just not been a thing. Like it's just for whatever reason it escaped being my focus or like my worry. I had like months in my life where like I wouldn't shower. I don't care. Like this is what I look like. Or sometimes my parents would be like, you're making yourself ugly on purpose. Like you're wearing ugly clothes. Like my, um, my stepmother would be like, why are you like wearing nostalgic clothing? Like, why are you wearing like these Francis farmer, like woolen dresses? <laughs> and I would like wear 20 million layers and just like have greasy, be- like just, yeah, maybe I was, re- I just, I don't think I was in my body for so long. And I think if anybody was ever to say to me like, what? Wow, like you're really beautiful I would be like you're not the person that I want to be around like mm-hmm. that's not important to me what's important to me is like my mind and feminism and like talking about these things is toxic I mean it took me a while to just be like it's okay like human beings have um meat, lust meat they have suits lust. and bodies and <laughs> lust and feelings yeah and- it took me a long long time yeah and I yeah and I'm still I think still wrapping my head around stuff like that 
I'm always curious about other writers' process. When do you have a? Did you in in the course of writing this? Did you have a set schedule? Oh, um, I have two children. Yes. I raised them. I mean, I have. I split them up with my wonderful ex partner. But it's it may, yeah. I think a, a schedule is dictated by sometimes by your life and. You know, like I have so many friends who teach and write, and that's their set schedule. I remember John Sa uh, George Saunders when he came to to PSU, the, he got that question about like discipline and like when do you write? Do you have a schedule? And he said like, yeah, this life is like my container, and he's like in a way working at a university is like a socialist job where like I buy myself free time to write, so it's like I have office hours, and if a student cancels, fantastic, I have like an hour to write, and it's kind of the same with me and my kids, and I have this, you know, I have some routines. My favorite thing to do, if anybody at all cares, is just copy Edith Wharton and like just wear like a cotton white nightgown and <laughs> have like all my stuff in my king-size bed with all my like flowery things and just not get out of bed and just like write, nap, do other stuff, write, nap, do other stuff. That's awesome. Do you do you ever use a standing desk? Totally not a deep question. I wouldn't. It's like it's not even. Like I, I, if I if I'm not writing like this or like that <laughs> or like that. Um, no, no, I don't. I don't have a thing. And my desk is like a pile of unpaid credit card bills <laughs> and just crazy photos everywhere. It's unmanaged chaos. But I, I have, um, I have gotten an art studio now where like if I go there to oh, write. Cool. And I'm this gorgeous space. Like, I'll just sit there, and I, I'll look up, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm like, oh, God, four hours has gone by. But it's it's really good to think about, like, what creates the space for either magic. Like, what's the alchemy, right? Mm -hmm. And I, for me, the alchemy is lying down in my bed. That's awesome. That's the ritual. <laughs> That's really fantastic. Maybe one more thing. And then yeah, sure. I don't want to bore everybody. Oh, well, poor, let's. Poor Bruce is getting <laughs> stiff. Um, let's see. I would say for the... I, th I think that before I started publishing, I went to book events um, in part because I like to read and in part because I was like, maybe they'll tell me the secret. <laughs> so To what? <laughs> to making a book happen. Oh, so okay. my question is, um, how much determination went into from start to finish, getting this damn thing done. Did you find it to be a process where you were, where, did you just sit down and were you like, I'm going to manifest on my vision board a beautiful memoir, done. Or how much like effort did it take? How much grit, how much blood, sweat, and tears did it take? Yeah. Or how much like this is chill and it was wonderful. You know, like I, I feel are like we it's- Are talking like industry stuff? Are we talking about selling a book? I Which, would say sell, for- What's the question? Well, I would say, yeah, that's I'm giving you a real, I'm just babbling at you. But no. I would say- how friggin' stressful has this experience been from start oh. to present? From with well, the moment you started thinking, I want to write a book, to now. Has it been a cakewalk? Has it been super easy? Oh. Well, obviously, like, the selling of a book and the writing of a book have absolutely nothing to do with each other. At mm -hmm. least for me, I never thought about it even one minute. And again, like, it's another area where my maybe willful naivete has helped me. I knew nothing. I didn't care one way or Like, I was like, great, send me a text. I love them. It would be great if they published it. That would be fantastic. But no. <laughs> you know, like, be like, oh, I love Grey Wolf. That'd be great. You know, like, I'm, I mean, just, I, I'm very transparent. FYI, like, Simon and Schuster really were the only people who wanted my book. I don't know what that says about America. <laughs> like, Grey Wolf said that it was too experimental for them. Uh, that's fine. That's cool. Um, <laughs> so you went with avant-garde alternative publisher Simon and Schuster. That's awesome. 
That's and really not great. Even Scribner. Like they, they make fun of Scribner. They're like, ugh, Scribner down there. Like I'd be like, what? I knew nothing. I didn't read Simon and Schuster books. I was not like a thing. I, I, I actually, my only real exposure in my ear about it was that I had a very annoying professor whose book I see over there who filled in for a professor of mine, and she was like, she, her, all of her stuff would be signed like forthcoming from Simon and Schuster. I'd be like, what a blowhard. Like, <laughs> like who cares? Like, so I, I, I'm always saying like. Okay, I'm a walking, talking contradiction in every single part of my life, and this would be one of them. Like, I am extremely skeptical and hateful of capitalism, and yet, right? (laughs) Um, And so, in in the selling of it, none of it was premeditated. I thought nothing. And, like, my agency, being William Morris, is, like, not anything that I... I didn't... Not It was literally, like, one of those things where it's not like a cakewalk. It was like, I wrote the thing. I was like, eh, I'll just put it in the drawer and see if anybody wants it. And then my very, very, very loving and supportive friend and old professor Lainey Zumas was like, hey, um, Jamie Carr just is trying to get a roster together at William Morris. Why don't you send her your book? Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you sure? It was kind of like, ugh, like that's, you know, I, you know, I don't even know getting an agent. It's not something I was doing. Again, I didn't know anything about that. And I just kind of sent her an email. I was like, do you want to read? You're starting a roster. Fantastic. You're no longer an assistant. And I sent it to her and she called me back right away. And she's like reading loving. And then I got a contract. And then after awesome. that, she was like, we're going to go on submission. And it looked really stressful. And I was kind of like biting my nails and there was like 17 things. And they were like, too experimental, too experimental, too experimental, too. And it was just, it went down the line like that, and it was between three people, and they, this was it. I mean, that's, that's cool. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I did not get acceptance from the people that I thought were awesome. Mm-hmm. But you're, it, but you're going, it's going wide to a big, potentially very big audience, which is really cool. Yeah, maybe, but they're like, I am like a nothing nobody to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, they I have, do know. As an author, bigger, I do know. Yeah, they have bigger <laughs> things to, like I, and, and, and you know what's great about it? Great. If you get with a, with a, with a big publisher and they don't care about you and you are like diligent and hardworking and you have grit, because mm-hmm. you could be like, grit is what? It's like sand, right? It's like it could slip through your fingers or you can get it real wet and like really get into it and it could be, you know, sticky. You can make it happen. So I had to make it happen. So... Yeah. yeah, I think that's the allu- a lot of people think that once you publish a book, they're like, you're wealthy, which is like, <laughs> and a lot of times you're doing a lot of the work yourself. It's not glamorous, but it's awesome, and you get to come to places like this and meet cool, all very attractive thank people you, thank you here and cool here. people like you. Yeah, thank you all. Give yourselves a round of applause for being thank here on a sitting. Saturday. Live, live through this. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I guess we will... I choose Courtney Love every time, every time. <laughs> I choose Courtney Love. That should be a t-shirt. Every that time, you yes, it's true. So you want to go sign some books or something? Yeah, if you guys or... have any questions, I'm oh, happy yeah. to answer them, but I'm sure this is long enough. Yeah, does anyone have a, a brief question that's not your pitch for your book? And um, is, is this like pertinent... an LA thing? I, I, did it, I yes. wasn't even prepared to yes. give an industry talk, no, it but is. I just thought, I, it felt <laughs> like you wanted me No, that, to. I'm just, I'm, I'm getting in front of the situation great, um, great. so that no one raises their hand it's like I wrote a compelling novel about and then five minutes later we all want to die so does anybody a have a question town. yeah does anybody have a question about this book or about this author oh excellent sir. yes
That's an A-plus style. This is a, your model for excellent questions. What's your name, sir? Sam. Sam. Okay. I, I, I'm kind of like a Jewish matchmaker. If you're not already attached, you seem like you would be uh, a, a great partner for somebody. <laughs> you just yented real hard. You just I, yented up. My friend just wrote me. You remember that? She said, I'm, I'm platinum status yenta. She <laughs> actually, this is an actual, this is a true, I'm, I, my next tattoo. Um, that's such a good question. So the book is loosely, sl and that base, it's not based on, but it's, it's, um, sort of just the, 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 the hand that rocks the cradle is uh, Marguerite de Ross all the way. Like, so if there's anything and everything that you want to get by her, I would go there and um, heavily influenced by Eileen Miles and Chris Krause for sure. Yeah. So yeah, read those ladies. Those are three heavy hitters. That's awesome. I don't, I don't understand the world without him. I wonder sometimes if people who review books just maybe have never read those people <laughs> is what happened. Who Dustin, I saw you raise your hand. Are you accusing me of having no self-awareness? Because you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's such a good question because I survived by going to school and I don't want to like put my partner in the spot, but like we talk about this a lot. You know, his sister like went to read really early on in life, and like sometimes there's just so many choices. And again, I know there are children here, and and for me, I understood fully as like having starved a lot of times. And my dad is now a, a dentist, by the way, because he's Jewish, and you have to become something <laughs> like that. Um, but but. I, when I went to college, I, I took myself to college, and I survived through college by surviving through college. And so I sort of saw it as like I can sell this or I can learn with this in, in, in a place that is safe for me where there are like rules and you show up at nine and the thing ends at 12 and it's not your parents just being like, oh yeah, my girlfriend is over here. We're doing whatever, put yourself to bed, whenever. I could handle no more loosey goosey, put yourself to bed, whatever. And so academia in general or anything having to do with school, even like in my high school, which was like this incredible, insane kind of punk rock environment of, you know, like no grades and you get to choose, like we had a class called the Kennedy years. I mean, hello. <laughs> um, and then going to Evergreen, like all of these places where like you have choices, but if you, if you want to choose to, to work and learn from the minute you wake up till sundown, and if you want to be like what I did, it was like nerdy, like literary editor of your yearbook. Um, 
editor of the feminist newspaper, like, like all of these things that I was doing, I was doing those things to protect myself before going to like Burger King and putting my manic panic hair into like a bun and putting the hat on and using that money to like go to the punk rock show. So all of these things lived inside me forever, but I never ever felt comfortable in academia. And I don't think, I don't, I just don't know how to do that. Like, and Dustin and I talk about this all the time because he's a teacher and he's wonderful and he has so much there to offer. And I, I just, I don't know how to belong in really any place, and that's a place, and I only know how to, like, receive. I don't know how to give to it. This is really random, but I just remember, I haven't thought of this in years, but my friend who's a, an immigrant from Azerbaijan, uh, ah! her mother, she's a psychiatrist who married a psychiatrist, and her mother, when her mother was in her early 60s, was like, you know what, I think I want to be a psychiatrist, and then just became a psychiatrist. Mazel. Oh, it's on exciting. That note, on that, become a psychiatrist. Just become a psychiatrist. A feminist psychiatrist. Be a dentist. Whatever. Do Whatever. something good with Be your life. Be a lives. feminist dentist. <laughs> I mean, the person is listening to you. Why don't you just... Uh, God, that's a really good... I would love a yeah, feminist dentist. maybe give them some devoir while they have their mouth open. <laughs> men. All men need to go to feminist dentists. And on that note, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much, you guys. We're going to go sign some books. Thank you, Sarah. You were incredible. Oh, these these questions. Thank you for having me. I love it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.